Section 8 of The Outline of Science, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Piotr Natter. The Outline of Science, Volume 4, by J. Arthur Thomas. Chapter 29, The Science of the Sea, Part 1. The Making of the Sea. There was a time in the Earth's history when there was no sea. The surface of the young earth was too hot to allow the accumulation of water in basins. More than that, there were no basins, for the surface of the young earth must have been at any one place as flat as a pancake. If the young earth was uniformly spherical, apparently flat at any point, there could be no separate seas. If the young earth had on its surface a high temperature, there could be no sea. The water would evaporate. But there is another factor which requires more explanation than this outline admits of, that the growing earth was originally too small to hold even a gaseous envelope, the atmosphere, still less an aqueous envelope, the hydrosphere. As the earth gradually grew in diameter, it acquired an atmosphere differing from that of today in having but little oxygen. For the oxygen of our air is mostly due to the activity of green plants. As the earth reached its limit of growth and began to cool and shrink, a rocky shell, or lithosphere, was formed, seething and swaying at first, but gradually gaining stability. The probability is that, as the result of surface boilings, lighter materials rose higher to form continents, while heavier materials sunk lower to form ocean beds. It is probable that overweighting of vast areas resulted in the formation of ocean basins, which have become steadily larger as the quantity of water on the earth has increased. Over limited areas the floor of the sea has sometimes been raised into dry land, and a large part of a continent has sometimes sunk down and formed the floor of a sea, but the trend of opinion among geologists seems to be in favor of the view that the present positions of the great masses of land and water have remained on the whole the same since continents and ocean basins were first established. But this is a much-discussed question. It should also be noticed that some suppose that there was a universal ocean over the earth before there was any dry land. To the natural question, where did all the water come from, geology answers from the earth itself. When we visit hot springs, or watch the clouds of steam rising from volcanoes, we probably get more than a hint of how the water of the sea began. It is supposed that from a quarter to a half of the present-day volume of the seas was in existence before the Cambrian period. The rest has been added since, expressed from the earth itself. There is, of course, an endless circulation of water on which the economy of nature largely depends. The mist rises from the sea, and clouds are formed which condense into rain or snow on the cold mountains or in cool strata in the air. The rain falls, the springs are fed, the streamlets become rivers, and these return to the parent sea. And it is the sun that keeps this water going round, for without the sun we could not have either rains or rivers. Why is the sea salt? On an average there are three and a half pounds of salty material to every one hundred pounds of seawater and the great bulk of this has been dissolved out by the rain from the rocks of the dry land. In a very real sense, the continents are always flowing into the sea. When there is an elevation of part of the floor of the sea, to form the chalk cliffs of Dover or the like, we may speak of a restitution of material from the sea to the dry land. 
and a better illustration of recoupment going on now may be found in the formation of a coral island on the shoulders of a submarine volcano to which reference has been previously made all the coral rock which is gradually elevated and in part piled up above the sea level consists of carbonate of lime which coral polyps and ancillary animals have extracted from the soluble lime salts of the sea-water but all that the sea has restored to the dry land is little compared with what it has filched or with what the fresh waters have surrendered there are dissolved salts and other solids in the water of rivers and lakes just as there are in the sea but those in the latter are nearly two hundred times as abundant as those in the former so we speak of fresh water and salt water more than three-fourths of the salts in the sea consists of common salt sodium chloride which forms seventy seven point seven per cent magnesium chloride forms ten point eight per cent and the same percentage is made up of the sulphates of magnesium calcium and potassium that leaves only zero point seven per cent for calcium carbonate magnesium carbonate magnesium bromide and traces of other salts there are so many marine animals with heavy shells of carbonate of lime think of oysters and periwinkles alone that one is surprised to find so little of this salt zero point three per cent in solution in the sea the explanation is that the carbonate of lime used in shell-making is largely formed as the result of some process of chemical change in the tissues of the animals from the fairly abundant calcium sulphate three point six per cent there is a far smaller proportion of silica in sea-water than in river-water and the explanation must be that the silica gets locked up in the siliceous skeletons of flinty sponges and of the beautiful microscopic plants called diatoms which float near the surface a very interesting fact in regard to the salts of the sea is their correspondence with the salts in the blood of land animals if the percentages of sodium magnesium calcium potassium and chlorine in sea-water be compared with the percentages in blood serum the figures are respectively thirty point five and thirty nine 3.79 and 0.4, 1.2 and 1.0, 1.11 and 2.7, 55.27 and 45.0. There are striking resemblances especially in the proportion of potassium and calcium to sodium, so it has been suggested by McCollum and Quinton that in Cambrian times an equilibrium was established between the living matter of marine animals and the composition of the surrounding water. To use Sir William Bylis's words, quote, when vertebrates with a closed circulatory system took to the land, they took with them a blood of the same composition as regards salt as the sea water which they left behind. End quote. As to the differences which the percentages we have quoted also reveal, these may be interpreted in terms of the changes in the composition of the sea since the close of the Cambrian period. The composition of our blood is a telltale relic the depth of the sea the total surface of the globe occupies about one hundred and ninety seven million square miles and about seventy one per cent of that namely one hundred and forty millions belongs to oceans seas and lakes the great mirror of the sea seems very uniform to the landsman's eye but it is really very heterogeneous for there are shallows and depths and apart from the floor the surface has its ups and downs this is due to a variety of causes but notably to the gravitational pull of the continents which implies a heaping up of the waters round the shores the surface of the mid indian ocean 
is thus lowered by the Himalayas. Thousands of soundings have been taken all over the navigable globe, and we know that the average depth of the sea is about 2.5 miles. Only 16% of the ocean floor lies between the shoreline and 1,000 fathoms. More than half the entire floor is covered by depths between 2,000 and 3,000 fathoms. Sir John Murray gave the name Deeps to holes and basins, troughs and trenches, with a depth of over 3,000 fathoms. Thus there is the Challenger Deep, 5,269 fathoms, in the northwest Pacific, and the Swire Deep, 5,349 fathoms, of Mindanao. Of this tremendous abyss, 400 feet more than 6 miles, Sir John Murray wrote, quote, if the highest known mountain, Mount Everest in the Himalayas, 29,002 feet, could be placed in this area of the Pacific, its summit would be covered by the waters of the ocean to a depth of 3,087 feet. End quote. From the bottom of the Swire Deep to the top of Mount Everest would be a vertical distance of 61,091 feet, or over 11.5 miles. This is surely the limit in the irregularity of the Earth's crust. 1. Temperature of the sea. Heat rays are lost at about 250 fathoms, and even in the tropics the upper stratum of warmish water is comparatively thin. The great bulk of the water in the oceans is relatively cold. There is an automatic regulation at the surface, for when the temperature rises there is increased evaporation which checks the rapidity of the rise, and if the temperature is lowered, a blanket of water vapor forms over the surface, which checks the rapidity of the fall. From one place to another there is great diversity of temperature, but at any given place there is, apart from the surface stratum, great constancy of temperature year in, year out. Murray and Mill write, quote, At the depth of fifty fathoms it is probable that the temperature does not change by so much as two degrees Fahrenheit at any one place throughout the year and below the depth of 100 fathoms there is no evidence of any annual change of temperature whatever. End quote. Sir John Murray calculated that, on the average, all the water in the ocean deeper than 500 fathoms may be said to have a temperature below 40 degrees Fahrenheit, and that this would include about 87% of the entire ocean. But in the great depths the temperature is lower still, it is just a little above the freezing point of fresh water, 32 degrees Fahrenheit. Eternal winter reigns. Quote, the ooze dredged from the ocean floor in the tropics is so cold that it cannot be handled without discomfort. End quote. This low temperature is mainly due to a slow northward creep of the ice-cold waters of the Antarctic. Pressure in the sea. When a piece of wood is weighted, lowered to a great depth, and pulled up again, it will no longer float. All the minute cavities in the wood have been burst in and filled with water. The log of wood is thoroughly waterlogged and gives one a hint of the enormous pressure at great depths. It is calculated at 2.5 tons on the square inch at a depth of 2,500 fathoms. And yet we know that a frail skeleton, like that of Venus's flower basket, stands like a fairy palace on the floor of the deep sea, and that it is surrounded by the delicate shells of creatures that once lived on the surface. How is the apparent contradiction explained? The pressure is due to the weight of the water which packs the molecules a little more closely together. If an open glass vessel is lowered into the water, it at once fills, 
and as the pressure of the water is the same inside as outside, nothing happens. If a corked bottle, not quite full, be lowered to a great depth, one of two things will happen. The cork will be stove in, or the bottle will be shivered. What is known as Buchanan's experiment is very instructive in this connection. It arose out of the fact that two thermometers lowered from the Challenger, in 1873, in 3,873 fathoms, collapsed owing to the great pressure. Mr. J. Y. Buchanan, the physicist on board, took a glass tube, sealed at both ends, wrapped it in a cloth, and enclosed it in a cylindrical copper case, with the ends pierced with holes to let the water in. The case was sent down to a depth of 3,000 fathoms, and then pulled up. The copper case looked as if it had been struck with a hammer at the portion occupied inside by the sealed glass tube, and as for that glass tube, it was represented inside the cloth by what looked like snow, the glass reduced to fine powder. Let us quote the explanation given by Sir John Murray, who witnessed the experiment. Quote, it seems that the sealed glass tube, while sinking, had held out long against the pressure, but this at last had become too great for the glass to sustain, and the tube had suddenly given way, being crushed by the violence of the action to a fine powder. The collapse had been so rapid and complete that the water had not had time to rush in through the holes at either end of the copper cylinder, and thus fill the empty space caused by the collapse of the glass tube, but had instead crushed in the copper wall, and thus brought about equilibrium. The process, which is exactly the reverse of an explosion, is called an implosion. End quote. When a body of any kind sinks to a great depth, any cavities it may contain will be quickly filled with water. But if there are cavities which cannot be quickly reached, like watertight compartments, they will be imploded, and the form of the body will be altered correspondingly. There is no warrant at all for the common sailor's belief that ships and men sink till they, quote, reach their level, unquote, and there remain suspended. Everything sinks to the bottom. When a deep-sea fish rises in pursuit of its prey above its usual zone, the decrease of external pressure brings about an expansion of the gases in the swim bladder, and the specific gravity of the fish is greatly reduced. The result is that, in spite of its efforts, the fish tumbles upwards to the surface, killed sooner or later by the distension of its organs. This is an explosion. 2. Movements of the Sea the sea is eternally restless. Even when there is no wind at all, there may be a swell, for the perfect elasticity of the water keeps it throbbing long after the storm is past, just as the gong continues quivering long after the blows have fallen. Attention has already been given to the tides, which are due to the gravitational attraction of the sun and moon, sometimes acting together, sometimes against one another. The familiar ebb and flow of the tides, two low tides and two high tides in every twenty-four hours and fifty minutes are coastal expressions of two worldwide tidal waves which ceaselessly chase one another round the globe. In equatorial waters, the tidal wave would travel at the rate of one thousand miles an hour if there were no obstructions, but it must be clearly understood that what travels so quickly is the undulation, not the water. Quote, the waving grain, as it bends to the breeze, causes an undulation that travels across the field faster than you can run. But the stalks are rooted. They only sway backward and forward to the breeze. So it is with the deep sea and its swell. 
end quote, Maury and Simmons. The tidal undulation and the familiar rise and fall must be distinguished from tidal currents produced near the shores and often attaining so great a speed, 6 to 11 miles an hour, that people use the word race. When a sea is shut off by a narrow entrance or by a breakwater of islands from the influence of the almost worldwide tidal wave, there will be little ebb and flow, as is well illustrated by the practically tideless Mediterranean. When the configuration of the coasts heaps up the tidal current, interesting phenomena may result, such as the 70-feet tides of the Bay of Fundy and the 40-feet tides of the Bristol Channel. In rushing into a river, the tide may form a dangerous bore or eager, a wall of foaming water, sometimes over 10 feet in height. We cannot leave the tides without noticing that they have ingrained their periodicity in the constitution of some of the shore animals, a fact of special importance since many of the great stocks of animals seem to have served an apprenticeship in the littoral area. Ages of reacting to the tidal rhythm have left their mark on many a shore animal, and probably on some that have long since passed beyond the sound of the sea. The small green worm convoluta comes up on the flat beach of Roscoff when the tide goes out, and disappears into the sand when the tide comes in. Removed to the laboratory, and placed in tall vessels half filled with sand and half filled with water, the little creatures continue, for a considerable time, moving up and down as the tide outside ebbs and flows. The rhythm of the tides has become an organismal rhythm. When a tidal current is split into two by a rocky island, and these meet again, a whirlpool is sometimes formed, a vast vortex of angry water. One of the best examples is Korivrekin in the sounds of Jura, where two rapid currents from the north and the west meet around a pyramidal rock which rises rather abruptly from a depth of 100 fathoms to within 15 feet of the surface. There is a true vertical movement, such as we see in miniature in an eddy on the downside of a rock which breaks the current in a river. Whirlpools have taken a grip of man's imagination, and their terrors have been exaggerated. The famous Charybdis in the Straits of Messina, which thrice a day sucked down the water of the sea and anything that sails thereon, is not a whirlpool at all, but a chopping sea, due to the oblique action of the wind on a tidal race or rapid, which changes its direction with each ebb and flow. Of course, it remains dangerous enough, but it is not a whirlpool. The same remark applies to the not less famous Maelstrom, between two of the Lofoden Islands. It is a race, not a vortex, and it is habitually navigated. Edgar Allan Poe's description of its down-sucking powers is a splendid piece of exaggeration. 3. Circulation in the sea. Almost as important as the circulation of the blood to the body is the circulation of the seawater to the welfare of the globe. Through the direct and indirect influence of the sun, producing changes of temperature, density, and wind, the waters of the ocean are in ceaseless circulation. This is an extremely difficult subject, and it may be enough here to distinguish the slow vertical movements in the mass of water and the more rapid horizontal movements of the surface stratum in drifts and currents. The Gulf Stream is a much-talked-of instance of an important oceanic current, which, as Dr. H. R. Mill says, quote, is often spoken of as if it were a phenomenon by itself, whereas it is really only part of a great system of surface circulation. 
the water whirling as it stirred in the direction of the hands of a watch in the northern Atlantic, and it stirred in the opposite direction in the southern part of the ocean. End quote. The almost resting center of the North Atlantic whirl forms quote, the calm, weed-hampered water end quote, of the Sargasso Sea. It embraces several hundred thousand square miles and is covered with a flotsam of seaweed wrenched off from distant shores. It remains today where it was when Columbus encountered it on his first voyage to America. There are four other great weed-humpered areas of little motion, but this is the Sargasso Sea. Storms at Sea It seems almost a bathos to write in cold blood of storms at sea. Part of the water surface, as Dr. Mill puts it, yields to the stress of the wind striking it obliquely, and is depressed, thereby ridging up the neighboring portions and originating a wave, the form of which advances as a line of rollers before the wind. Only the form advances, for while the particles of water in the crest of the wave are moving rapidly forward, those in the trough move back to almost exactly the same extent. Thus rollers merely lift and lower the vessels that floats upon them. When these waves reach a shallow, the lower part in contact with the floor is retarded, and the upper part curves into what often looks like a flinty cave, and then breaks into spray. These breakers have great eroding power, blasting and hurling off huge pieces of rock, or carving the cliffs with a battery of gravel. Dr. Mill gives a quarter of a mile as the greatest length of a wind wave from crest to crest, and fifty feet as the maximum height but the bell of a lighthouse on one of the Isles of Scilly was wrenched off by a breaker at a height of 100 feet. It should be noted that even the largest waves are very shallow in their grip, and have hardly any appreciable effect below 100 fathoms. There are other storms due to the wind driving a thin stratum of the surface water before it, either inshore or offshore. Earthquakes and volcanic eruptions may also raise huge waves, a whirlwind is an aerial vortex or eddy caused by the meetings of two winds, and a whirlwind at sea may cause a water sprout. This consists of a pillar of cloud rising from sea to sky, whirling on its axis round a core of low pressure and moving over the surface of the deep. The water at its base is fiercely agitated as if it were boiling, but there is no sucking up of more than the spendthrift from the waves. 4 the floor of the sea a comprehensive survey of the globe leads us to distinguish three great areas first there is the continental area including a the elevated plain with an average height of about two thousand two hundred and fifty feet above sea level b the shallow water shelf around the continental islands which are insulated parts of the mainland as distinguished from oceanic islands which originate as volcanoes from the floor of the sea and may become the foundations of coral reefs. See the making of the earth and the story of the rocks. Second, there is the continental slope, from the shallow water shelf down to the bottom of the sea, occupying about one-sixth of the total superficial area of the globe. Third, there is the abyssal area, the floor of the deep sea, a prodigious plain of about one million of square miles. It seems to be on the whole a monotonous plain, with undulating slopes, like sand dunes, interrupted by occasional volcanic cones, rising towards or even to the surface, and by occasional troughs and basins, the deeps already referred to. 
It is believed that the Earth's crust, or lithosphere, beneath the oceans, like that of the continents, is superficially, quote, parceled out into great earth-like blocks, separated from each other by folds and fissure lines, along which volcanic action and gaseous emanations take place, and through which massive outflows of molten matter occur, unquote, Mary. The continental crust has been explored by borings and mines to depths of several thousand feet, and geologists consequently know a great deal in regard to what is hidden below the surface. As to the abyssal crust, however, the dredge cannot penetrate beyond the deposits, and the nature of the submerged crust has been inferred rather than observed. Some information is afforded by comparing the materials ejected from oceanic and from continental volcanoes. The former appear to be heavier and more basic, the latter lighter and more acid in composition. See The Making of the Earth and the Story of the Rocks. The continental earth blocks tend to rise, the abyssal earth blocks tend to subside. Deep Sea Deposits In the shallow water, or comparatively shallow water, of the littoral area and the upper parts of the continental slope, the deposits on the floor are very diverse, varying from place to place according to the nature of the shore rocks the material the rivers bring in and the characters of the marine vegetation and animal life thus there are gravels sands muds and masses of organic matter on the floor of really deep water there is an accumulation of fine-grained ooze consisting very largely of the calcareous and siliceous remains of minute organisms which have sunk down from the surface Thus there is the Globigerina ooze, predominantly made up of the pinhead-like shells of surface foraminifera, comparable to those that formed a great part of chalk deposits in the distant past. This Globigerina ooze has a pale grey colour, sometimes reddened with iron oxide or tinged brown with manganese. It is said to cover an area of 47,752,000 square miles at a mean depth of 12,000 feet. In other areas, there is a predominance of the shells of winged snails, theropods, or of siliceous radiolarians, or of siliceous diatoms, all derived from the surface waters overhead, and thus there are different varieties of ooze. Along with the remains of organisms, both from the surface and from the floor itself, there may be, of course, particles of volcanic dust and meteoritic iron as well as minute fragments from the land rocks and precipitations from the seawater. Over an immense area of 55 million square miles, almost equal to the whole land surface of the globe, there is a slowly accumulating deposit of red clay, the insoluble residue and final form of all the sea's dust. No red clay has been recognized among continental sedimentary rocks. Indeed, chalk is the only continental rock which can be traced back to an ancient ooze, what should be inferred from these facts is still uncertain. End of section 8